This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And back in 1967, for the first time, Gaelic football became an international competition when a team of Aussie rules footy players challenged challenged them in their own game on their own soil. And uh, the team, the Australian team, was dubbed the Galars and a doco of the same name has now been made about this trip and this game. And uh, Tony Wilson is one of the people behind it. And it's really good to see you, Tony. Hi, Kaya. How are you? Dylan, thanks for having me in. And um, so, I mean, why did you want to tell this story, the Galahs? Well, do you know, I didn't. Um, no, I did. Uh, <laughs> but what happened was I was at a three-quarter time huddle in the VAFA watching Uni Blacks play down at Elstonwick Park. And a guy came up to me, Rob Heath, a guy I'd known at uni. I did law with Rob. And he said to me, do you know what I've been doing? I've been writing a piece about this trip in 1967. Did you hear about the VFL footballers who went on and took on, t- t- took on the All-Ireland Champions? in 1967 and you know I'd known about the Irish concept and the international rules and I'd followed it a little bit in the 80s and 90s with Dermot and others that had played but I had no idea that it went so far back and I really thought I knew pretty much everything about footy history and so he started telling me about it and the names that went and the names were unbelievable it was like Jezza and Royce Hart and um, and Ron Barassi and Bob Skilton and Hassa Mann and kind of the players of the era you know genuine all-Australian side and he was telling me that and he said you're a filmmaker let's go and interview them all and I'd done Race Around the World in 1998 had about a 15 years off but Rob wasn't to know that and he said let's go and interview them all let's do it and Rob's keen with everything he does he's just a 100 miles an hour person and in, and so he said and I said yeah yeah and I said it like that you know like we'll, we'll never As get if. around to doing this <laughs> and then Monday Rob emails me and says what about when we talked about that on Saturday oh here's the I've got some numbers of the past players associations let's go and speak to all these players and so like uh, within a couple of days we're away we're sort of going out to Fitzroy Oval at Brunswick Street Oval there and and Hassa Mann comes out and and, he, and Rob's pretty much organised it all and and we're standing in the middle um, with Cam Fink who's the co-director as well we're just there in the middle of the Oval listening to Hassa Mann tell the story of the trip and it's just unbelievable it's it immediately you know as soon as Hassa started speaking we knew that we had something and, and, and Rob was right you know it was this story of uh, you know a milk run there they stopped off in Darwin went on the way and played an indigenous team a, a kind of an all-stars team then they went to Vietnam during the Vietnam War and had to stay on the tarmac <laughs> and they went via Delhi and then you know they went to Paris for a few days and it was just this this football adventure for these boys that had kind of never and been they out never, of Yeah and they never thought that they'd become international athletes because it's the VFL I mean it, they'd never even played in Darwin like that was it was really early days for the competition well before it became even Aussie rules well, like that's a, right. Australian AFL Can I just say as well, I love that this plan was hatched at a three-quarter time huddle because they're talking in, in the film about this really intense kind of address that Barassi gave to rev up the players and I can't remember who it, who it was who's describing it, but he says if you so much as rubbed your nose, you'd get this death stare. Yeah. If there was any sound happening there, but you could have a chat while the team was getting there. Well, that's right. We were at the back of the huddle discussing our uh, our one soon-to-be, uh, well, four years later, we'd be uh, at the Melbourne International Film Festival uh, premiering <laughs> this thing with, with all these players turning up uh, we had this amazing day last year when we well, that night last year when we when we showed this and you know it was just such a nice uh, reunion type atmosphere for it because you know they became really good friends and you know John Nichols and Barras came and um, and Jezza in the front row and, and, and there was a, there's a sense that this is you know that they were groundbreakers and there was a sense that they um, that they that they uh, that they opened up this international idea and as it turned out, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the international idea hasn't exactly flourished. Like uh, it's, this year, there'll be a game, uh, Ireland versus Australia, and um, you know, the, the it'll, I'm sure that people aren't on the edge of their seats at the moment, wondering who will hold that trophy. But when they went 50 years ago, you know, the rhetoric from Barassi and others was, "This is going to change it. We're going to become, we're going to be playing in New York. We're going to be playing in Ireland." And they were attacking the game with the seriousness of pioneers. And what was the genesis for it, the actual tour? Who who thought this would be a great idea? So the idea is actually we have a little motif through the film where there's like Beitzel, Harry Beitzel is credited with it 
commonly. You know, it's kind of thought of as Harry Beitzel's Galaz. And he was a 3OW radio, you know, entrepreneur, ended up being um, kind of disgraced through the, the, the pools um, and went to jail for a little while. But but Harry was um, a, you know, a broad thinker and, and a doer. And so he often gets credited with it because he put up all the money and he made this trip happen. And he was very generous with us in terms of making this film. But the uh, idea actually came from Ian Law. And Harry He's conveniently sort of forgot that. Um, Ian Law was a rover for Hawthorne, uh, played in the 1961 Premiership. I think he won two or three uh, club champion awards. Great player. And Ian was watching the... Uh, the All-Ireland final in 1966 and the bloke next to him, in fact let's say that the idea came to the bloke from the bloke <laughs> next to Ian Law said, you play AFL, VFL don't you? I mean isn't this a sort of similar game? Couldn't you play these guys? And so Ian Law came back to Australia and wrote to the uh, Herald Sun columnist or the Age columnist um, and, it, and who said who ran, wrote a piece on it and said Ian Law's got this idea, you know, let's uh, let's uh, go over and take on the Irish and, and he called for expressions of interest and and it was through that that the ball started rolling. It's interesting that even even in the film when they're talking about I think Irishman's talking about playing the Australian players and they're like oh they were so big they had you know their sleeves cut off you could see their muscles and they were huge they were kind of more they athletic. On, than they, they got on the ground and did a lap at yes, the beginning. Right. <laughs> the easiest you like the muscles <laughs> out. It's such a great accent and I'm not doing it justice but the, it was it, they're fantastic. That was a, another thing that Rob organised was he said we got to speak to the Irish, you know, and so <laughs> off he goes and gets the, the phone numbers of all the guys who played in the in the Meath side, and we got a stringer crew to go. We didn't go over to Ireland to film it ourselves, but we sent questions via a, an interviewer over there at Croke Park, and they all turned up one day, and so it was all sort of done long distance. Um, but the Irish interviewees were fantastic, and, and as you said, they were. Uh, it was a much more of an amateur. Well, it still is pretty much an amateur game mm. in Ireland, and so um, the, the the sort of semi professionalism even of our VFL players meant that they had the big muscles as the uh, <laughs> Irish said and uh, and that they looked bigger and and fitter and I think the game as it was played was we kind of dominated the game um, to their surprise you know with lots of angsty head headlines you know what's this revolutionized the game we'll never see anything like it again that kind of thing because our guys were so fit and so strong and I remember being, being in Ireland probably about uh, nine or ten years ago and talking to someone about the International Rules Games and he was kind of saying the same thing. He was telling me about Spider Everett coming on the ground and this kind of shudder of fear you'd get as a, a fan of Gaelic <laughs> football because it was just huge and like, oh, God, he's going he's gonna to kill us. But that's kind of still a thing that's attributed to AFL players when that international game happens. Uh, no, I think the physicality and, in fact, we, I think we disgraced ourselves kind of ten years ago. There was a, a game which was just a biffo when the Australians really punched the living suitcases out of the Irish um, and you know that kind of put a sour note I think into the series because it's, it's usually been quite a you know a positive thing um, uh, but gen- definitely we've had the bigger guys and they've even modified the tackling rule the, the Australian rules tackling rule is not um, permitted to the same extent because of the bullying that could go on I think in terms of the size difference but we've tended to lose the series in recent mm. times because the game the hybrid game tends to suit the more fleet of foot um, and the more athletic and I, I think the speed and athleticism of the Irish game calls for less strength and toughness but um, but encourages speed and, and quick ball movement now and in fact the Irish have pretty much uh, edged us out the last few times There you go. Um, we're talking to Tony Wilson and the Galaz doco which he uh, co-directed and um, co-produced and I, I was thinking about the origins of the game because I did have a laugh in the, in the documentary when uh, you know a very um, I suppose fast-thinking uh, Irishmen claim credit basically for the Australians winning this first game, saying, well, you know, there's a lot of Irish migration to Australia yeah. and clearly they've come back home, the boys have come back home. But it made me think about the origins of the VFL or the, the Australian rules game in that um, Mangrook is often, you know, that's widely accepted as the origins of AFL, but there is this similarity with the Irish games. I mean... Is there a mashup that's happened here or what? Absolutely. Now, I'm going to get in trouble with all the great sports historians and they, they come to loggerheads on this whole question. So no doubt Mangrook is a contributing factor and there's, um, I think, in the 1840s and 1850s, there's accounts of the, the game, a kind of a keepy-uppy game being played 
on cattle stations uh, in the Western Districts, and that's kind of where Tom Wills lived and um, would have seen Mungrook played, and, and he was quite engaged with Aboriginal Australia as well. And so there's almost no doubt that that's a contributor. But at the same time, he's also a, um, a bloke who um, he was quite an educated person from the upper classes and I think he spent time in England he would have been exposed to the ball games as they were evolving there which would have included perhaps Gaelic football um, also the um, uh, association football or soccer and so it's all kind of mashing up um, in that 1840s 1850s 1860s and and Australian rules actually claims to be almost the first one codified Um, uh, association or soccer came later and rugby is still evolving as well you know, as to whether you're allowed to pick up the ball, um, that was still being decided um, in the 1860s and 70s. So there's lots of people who have different... I've probably stampled on, on a few theories there, but certainly the Irish contribution, there's no way that Australian rules only came from Mungrook. And there's, there's, it's certain that all the Irish immigration and... Because um, Gaelic is quite an ancient game and there's a heap of Irish people out here in Australia. There's no doubt that Australian rules owes a lot to Gaelic football. From all the people you you spoke to as part of this doco, do you get the sense that that tour in 1967 forged or or kind of left a mark on their friendship over the past decade since? Did it really have a significant effect on them? I think so. I think absolutely that these these people were uh, close. I mean, Norm Brown, um, who's a Fitzroy tourist, he's a great laconic kind of, you almost expect him throughout the doco to be sort of sipping um, a pot, you know, with froth on his top lip as he as he tells you about the uh the shenanigans you know he stole bob skilton's hat uh, when bob was a bit drunk and um well no bob blamed him for stealing a hat and they ended up having a what would you would call a flailing armed drunken person fight after a uh after a dinner um and so you know but bob and norm tell different versions of that story and they they've become no i think they're really they're each other's best friend so a fitzroy player and a south melbourne player uh, becoming best friends and, and and that happens with state football or it used to um and it's it, it happened on this trip as well and, and there was real camaraderie between them all and, and you, you still got that from uh, talking to them 48 years later they were they were very affectionate towards each other and and to the irish as well and what about the name the Galas? because it doesn't sound very complimentary no, it was uh, it was a slur. So what happened? Um, the Galahs actually got mentioned in Parliament because they made this decision. Um, and when you think about it nowadays, it's not that surprising that they cop some flack for this. But Harry Beitzel seemed bemused and, and thought this was a complete overreaction. But he decides with his great marketing um, eye, let's dress them up in slouch hats, World War One diggers hats, and send them off to Ireland you know, in their galas blazers, but with these, um, you know, turned up at the side diggers hats. And, you know, you can sort of... Um, Imagine in this day and age, we're so sensitive around yeah, Anzac. Yeah, so they're, they're grabbing the Anzac spirit <laughs> and sending footballers overseas. It's the, the ultimate appropriation. You know, you see it all the time of the, the likening of the, of the gladiatorial spirit of sport with the actual gladiatorial nightmare of war. And they were doing it very obviously with this hat. And, and so they copped some flack, um, less than what they would have got now, but more than what Harry was expecting. And they actually got called galahs by the press, you know, that they looked like a pack of galahs. And, um, and Harry tells a very long-winded and gloriously inaccurate story about how um, the, the galah then, you know, Sir Doug Nichols consoled him and said, um, look, one, when you arrive in Ireland, the galah will soar over <laughs> Ireland and it will become a sacred bird and like some long, it's about 45 minutes of story, but actually it was just appropriated by them. They said, hey, they're going to call us galahs, let's just go for it and embrace it and they, they <laughs> kind of took it on in the great tradition of owning your direct derogatory nickname and they loved it and they dominated and they won some key games and came back heroes. <laughs> <laughs> Why hasn't the, the rivalry continued between Aussie rules players and, and Gaelic players to the level that it seemed like was really alive and well back in the, the late 60s? Oh, I think it's because of injury and the professionalism of the game and the stakes at play. So it's sort of hard to convince um, you know, Brad Scott and and, uh, and one of you know, uh, 
so it's hard to convince the modern day coach that this sort of uh, team, this competition bonding, this inter between the teams bonding, this uh, this flying of the Australian flag um, is more important than their, the the fitness of their players. And so these million dollar commodities, they don't want them getting hurt in a mm. end of season game. But the, 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 at the same time, it has still survived. So the games will be on this year, and they changed the rules recently to make it so that only all Australian players, you had to be an all Australian in order to be selected so the the quality of the player pool um, went right up again and Pendlebury and others, um, Luke Hodge and others have run around in in the international colours and they've scheduled the games for November, basically while the players have a permanent hangover they put them on the field in (laughs) in these games Um, In in Ireland in the freezing cold In the freezing cold, in fact last year they went to New York and they played as they did go to New York on on our trip as well in 1967 but they returned to New York uh, last year and played a Irish team in the kind of Irish uh you know, in areas of New York where, where where they played back in '67. And what about this um, hankering to have an international code, which seemed to be there in the doco? People were really proud, you know, like Olympians to yeah. to be in the Australian colours. I mean, I mean, we've had some what demonstration games in China or something, haven't we? Something well, like that's that. Coming I mean, this year. <laughs> is that happening? Has that happened or happened? Sorry, I'm not the closest follower of AFL, but uh, is that? Hankering sold out. There still? Sold out. Gold Coast versus oh. Port Adelaide in in China. So it's that, that at least they've either given the tickets away successfully, <laughs> or they have actually sold out a stadium worth of fans for Gold Coast and Port Adelaide. But um, there's always these international ambitions, and, and I'm always a little bit, you know, not um, bemused because you know here I am flying the flag for this wonderful story, and I love this as a historical story. But at the same time, the the seriousness of of an AFL push into South Africa. You know, that was the, you know, when, when they were sort of uh, talking about the great athletes over there, what if we could pluck those six foot ten um, Zulu heritage blokes to come and play AFL? And you're like, really? We're going to do this? <laughs> um, are we going to put millions of dollars into this? Is, is that is that better than, say, saving... Maybe we should just have a Tassie team before we do no, that. Absolutely. We'll to that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my view is you, you get... Has he right before you expand into expand South Africa the women's and China? Comp. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's, there's certainly, and even put money into junior football and, and clubs and country clubs, and you know the, the, the get rid of the pokies. I don't know. I have a wish list, obviously, yeah. for what we could do first. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I do think that though that they they can keep this concept alive. It's a really nice thing, and it could be more seriously addressed. They could have a the Beitzel Cup. I think it should be named after Harry for all he did in terms of and 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 the Irish. Uh, coach over there who who was his counterpart mortgaged his house so that was yeah. not insignificant he put it all up it was really it was a really gutsy move and he didn't get much money because they the big game they sold it out just an absolute you know it was a, it was a big crowd came in to watch um, uh, Meath play Australia but then they they opened up the gates for children and the clergy which counted everyone everyone was a priest it turned out when they turned <laughs> up at the gate and so he didn't kind of get the gate receipts that he was hoping and 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 so he didn't really make money on the trip um, so the players actually agreed not to take any fees that they were promised at the start of the trip they said no you keep it Harry we've had a good time and you've shipped us around the world. It's been awesome. So if people want to see this documentary... So if you go to iTunes and search The Galahs, um, it comes up there and you can... I think it's coming out tomorrow, 2nd of May or something like that, or 3rd of May. So you can um, pre-order there uh, And uh, if you're an iTunes watcher. Um, if you're still a DVD person, uh, it's out through Madman Entertainment. And if you go to thegalahs.com, uh, you'll find the links to both the iTunes and the DVD. Um, and, yeah, that's probably the best way. Or, or go through the Madman website. Yep, and it's a lot of good fun. I really enjoyed watching it. Congratulations. And um, who knows what you'll do next, Tony? Oh, thank you. No, I'm, I'm going to do another one of these because, as Rob reminded me, it had been 15 years, but I am a filmmaker. <laughs>
Pressure's on. <laughs> um, thanks so much. And last Friday, another step was taken towards a treaty between Victorian Aboriginal people and the state government. Negotiations have been bubbling away for some time and the state government's now committed $28.5 million towards the establishment of an independent representative group to not only advance treaty negotiations to, but to provide support for an elected Aboriginal body for the first time in this state since ATSIC uh, was abolished in 2005. And to talk more about this and other issues as well, uh, Muriel Bamflett is here. She's CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency and it always feels like a coup to get you in <laughs> to Chippewa, Muriel. Welcome. And uh, yeah, so last Friday was another step uh, in the sort of, I suppose it's been a 12-month long um, discussion, forums all around the state to, to start setting up a negotiation on treaty in Victoria. Yeah, and it's quite complex. Um, clearly, um, you know, not setting up a representative body needs to include all Aboriginal people. And so um, there are over 300, you know, nations or tribes of Aboriginal people. And so getting together and, and hearing the voice of Aboriginal community has been really important. So, it, you know, I've been able to, fortunately, been able to go to a number of forums. So I went to Mildura and Chuka and I've been to Shepparton. And so some of those forums, you, you know, for the first time, it's Aboriginal people coming and saying, well, we want a voice. We need a voice. We need to have somebody hear all of our issues and talk on and, and, and be able to represent us. So it, it, the message was very clear that people all everybody in all of the forums said we want some form of a treaty. And so treaty is one thing, but then an elected body to then negotiate that treaty is, is another. How is that sort of... Yeah, and I mean, I think that a lot of the questions have been between be, between what will they represent, who will they be, how will we rep, how will we select them, how do we know that they'll have the skills and knowledge, and so the integrity, um, and so there's been a lot of um, obviously our consultation process. We started way back in February, when, you know, there was first the call for a treaty, and we were really pleased when the government took up and said um, they were prepared to start begin negotiations and conversations around the treaty process. So um, since then we've held a number of consultations with the community. At the moment we're looking at, you know, things like the purpose of it, the the structure of it, the roles and functions of it, the governance, the funding and the representation. And so we've got to get that right. And will it be an incorporated body? How will it be? Who will who will have have say over how it you know, um, operates and so there's a lot of concern, particularly last Friday, about um, whether it's another government body and, and the government, as they did with ATSIC, can just go in and abolish it at any time and so a, a, a certain concern about how it will be managed and will the people just be puppets for government so there's still a lot of fear and a lot of conversations but I think a lot of the negative there's a closeness now. We're getting closer to some agreement about a structure going forward. And, I mean, treaty hasn't really been spoken about that much seriously at the federal level. The federal yeah. government's been much more committed to constitutional recognition and not really wanting to go into treaty, perhaps because they just see it as too too difficult. I'm not really sure. But, I mean, given that, do you think they are watching very closely what's happening here in Victoria, given that over the past 12 months, um, as you've said on this program previously, there's been a fairly um, strong and robust exchange and a lot of goodwill there? You know, I think we've always been disappointed with the Commonwealth level and, and clearly because um, a, a treaty, um, statutory treaty cannot be entered into um, with the state government that's really binding um, and it has to be sovereign nation to sovereign nation. So the Commonwealth only has the real ability, the legal ability to enter it. And other countries like Canada and America and New Zealand, they all have treaties with First Peoples. Australia's so far behind. And I think, you know, there's been many attempts in the past to enter into a treaty, but um, the, the conversation became too hard and too complex. And given that Australia has so so many nations of Aboriginal, so many tribes and so many uh, groups, it, it became too challenging. But I think it's doable. We know that there are two other states. They're in a competition with Victoria to get a treaty over the line. I think South Australia's rung up and said, we've already got, whoever begun the tom the um, conversation. And so they're, they're really trying to beat us to the post. So a healthy competition, I, I think it shows a very you know, grown-up approach. And we know that there have been various um, local governments that have talked about wanting to have local agreements, local treaties. I think that's a great approach too. I think that um, 
treaties aren't often binding, but they're an agreement or a, and, and it's about how do we treat each other, how do we, you know, work together and so how do we treat our First Peoples and I, I think that we as First Peoples just want to know that we're respected, that um, that we're valued as people but that we're contributors, that when we don't take anything away from this country or, or from the values that this country has. And I think also, I mean, some uh, of the, the discussions have, have come out that we want more Aboriginal history in Victoria's curriculum yep. and education curriculum, that sort of thing. So an education and young person kind of led process. But I, I, I wonder with regards to an elected body, I mean, if it if it is elected, do you think there'll be more acceptance from government that that elected body might not speak in one voice, that there might be a range of views represented if it's elected, just like in our normal parliament? Uh, look, there's no doubt in our community conversations we've had so many people saying, well, you know, um, the, the re even the steering group that's been established, how can they represent the whole of Victoria? And so those, those conversations, I mean, I think it's very difficult. It's a democratic process, so it's about how do we include and our, our real push is to get as many Aboriginal people involved in the conversation because the, the strength of the representative body will be, be able to hear everybody's voice and be able to ensure that we don't have, um, you know, power plays, that there isn't, a, you know, one representative body that, you know, only represents a part of the community. It's got to represent all Aboriginal people, all of the issues. There has been a lot of talk about the importance of culture in this, that it's got to have in cultural integrity. It's got to be able to know the history, represent the, the issues, but it's got to be focused on improving the lives of Aboriginal people. And this is a, a significant year and mm. um, you, you were reminding us off air that it's 50 years since the 1967 referendum. It's uh, uh, that we've got NAIDOC coming up mid-year and it's a big one there and we uh, it's 20 years since the Bringing Them Home report. Uh, is there sort of pressure on that this is the year that treaty starts as well? Is, there, is, that, is that happening? Or uh, I think we would hope, but I think we're aiming for 2018 to get a real commitment. I think the Victorian government certainly putting, you know, announcing that uh, $28 million for um, treaty is a first. And I think other states can talk about that they're doing it, but this is the first real financial, you know, contribution to it. But I think, you know, 60 years, the, the mother organisation, the Aborigines Advancement League is 60 this year, VAC is 40 this year. But the bringing them home, um, you know, was a watershed time for Aboriginal people around 54 recommendations. A lot of those haven't been implemented so we'll certainly be doing some a lot of work there but you know, the 67 referendum really sort of was a time where the Australian people did vote for Aboriginal as First Peoples and um, must, much of the um, politicism and, and fighting in the streets took place here in Victoria. So it was Victoria that was very strong um, in fighting for the 67 referendum. There were many Aboriginal people that, um, you know, went and took up petitions. And so we have people like Uncle Alex Jackamos who, with many other elders, they went to the Collingwood football, you know, and I hate to, you know, acknowledge this, but a lot of the Collingwood football um, supporters signed the petition to have a referendum. So I wouldn't say that they, they were the ones that got it over the line, but, you know, the fact that, um, you know, we were able to get Collingwood because a lot of the times it was battlers and, and it's always been battlers that have been behind Aboriginal people. Well, as a Collingwood fan, any kind of positive attribution to their supporters, <laughs> is, I'm fine with that. <laughs> and, and a win and, over the weekend. No, of course, yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. um, and I guess um, coming out of the forum last Friday and with this announcement by the state government, what, what is the next step in treaty negotiations now? What, what happens next? Well, we're hoping to have some uh, community assemblies so that we can actually, and we're going to model it on um, the um, a citizens jury that was held in Geelong and I think Melbourne City Council have recently so that we can actually get now um, discussions around you know how do we do the nominations how do we actually select our people and so it's really now to try and engage our people in those conversations because we've held consultations but now we really want to start targeting some community people and getting expressions of interest to get people along to a community assembly so that we can actually hear from them how do we actually get to the detail of it. Now, we're really sort of getting to where the, you know, the rubber hits the road and we really need to now start putting, putting together the final structure forward. 
And I, I imagine this is taking a lot of energy from from people. Uh, is there a kind of a core group of, of individuals pushing this through or, or is there kind of a, a growing, I suppose, a snowball effect happening? Oh, I think there's a swell now. I mean, when we first went out, people go, well, what's a treaty? What does it mean? Oh, we've heard this, you know, government's talking. I mean, and we've had advocates, you know, like Robbie... Thorpe and others that have talked about, and you know, Jeff Clark, you know, and people that have been activists for many years say we want a treaty, we want a treaty now. And then all of a sudden people are saying, well, what is it? What does it mean? How does it apply? And so, yes, I mean, it's now something that people... um, you know, are, are now actively engaged, but it's also about really our, our things to create a vision for the future. So, in five generations, when we look back, what do we create that set up something for the future for Aboriginal? Because you still want to know that you have a footprint that you left. You know that Aboriginal people have a footprint in Australia, and that we haven't that we have contributed to this nation. So, it's really important that Aboriginal for Aboriginal children of the future. But we've also grow, got to grow our leadership and have our young people learn about their culture. If they're not proud to learn about their culture, if they don't know where to go, then there's a a real risk that Victorian Aboriginal culture will disappear. To your, you know, core work around children, um, Muriel, um, you've been giving evidence to a range of different forums, um, Royal Commissions in the Northern Territory and also uh, um, happening nationally around uh, sexual abuse um, in um, various different um, you know, church bodies and the like that's been going for some years. I mean, what's your, your sense about change in that area? Are we going to see significant positive change in the lives of, of young people, do you think, following on from these Royal Commissions? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the important thing, um, you know, is redress particularly for um, victims of sexual abuse. And so I'm on the Redress Council at the moment. And so looking at how do we actually address, you know, um, and be able to come up with a system to be able to adequately um, recompense people that have experienced, you know, the types of abuse. And it's quite horrific to hear about the evidence from people about what, what they experienced in those institutions. But we also need to be able to make sure that we prevent it, that we, we understand how the system, um, how people are very smart, at, you know, and we have perpetrators out there that are very clever at getting into places where they can access the most vulnerable. And so we need to make sure that we have systems that are strong, that we, you know, raise awareness. So I think the Royal Commission um, has already sort of made numerous, um, you know, sort of uh, change across the nation, but I think there'll be much more to come. And I think it's really important that we have the capacity to bring about interventions for for children, particularly in the most vulnerable, that still, I believe, are at risk. Um, mm. yeah. and, and I mean, you mentioned that the um, the recommendations from the Bringing Them Home report, many of them haven't been put into place. And I mean, we'll wait and see what the recommendations are coming out of the yeah. Royal Commissions. Um, we know that many of the recommendations from the um, the Royal Commission into deaths in custody also weren't put into place. So we need we need the recommendations to be taken seriously, don't we? That come out of well, these. I think for Aboriginal, we would say. I think there's always been an absence of commitment to Aboriginal um, reports and so, you know, the Royal Commission into Ad- Aboriginal Deaths and Custody made a number of recommendations, over 350. Many of those weren't implemented. The 54 recommendations out of the Bringing Them Home report, many of those weren't implemented. So, And there are plans and plans and there are recommendations and we've got human rights charters and conventions and they fail um, Aboriginal people... And so I think, you know, having a system, we've got a social justice commissioner, a new June Oscar has come on board. Hopefully, um, you know, a lot of those things can be rectified. And you've raised concerns in the past about another stolen generation and Mm. um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are being removed at families at extremely high rates, still um, higher rates than they were previously when that report was was commissioned. And you're appearing at an event at the Wheeler Centre later this month called Not Seen, Not Heard, The Hidden Stolen Generation. And I guess with those new appointments and, you know, with the people that you speak to in the area that you work in, do you feel like there are changes afoot to begin to address this, given that it's, you know, not much has, has happened over the past decades. Yeah, no, look, I'm, you know, part of uh, the Secretariat for National Aboriginal Islander Childcare and so Family Matters, they're running a, a campaign um, to reduce the numbers of Aboriginal children in care or, or to get 
equitable with with um, Australians, you know, um, children in out of home care. At the moment in Victoria, there's 1,800 Aboriginal children. We were looking at the data. There's been an 88% increase since 2011 in the numbers of Aboriginal children in care. And so, when you look, think about the Bring Them Home report, there were 379 children. And you know, um, Mick Dodson said back then, if we don't do something, those numbers will increase in the next 10 years. Well, we're 20 years on and look at the numbers, you know, we've tripled, nearly quadrupled how many children are in care. And so I think the thing is, is that we we have to be able to do more to keep children at home. There's a really, um, we're running Aboriginal guardianship, which is transfer of authority to Aboriginal organisations. And there's been a pilot in Bendigo where it's an as-if pilot. And it's where an Aboriginal organisation, the Bendigo Aboriginal Co-op, has been um, running out of home care, uh, running services for and making decisions for children entering the system. What they've been finding since they've taken on that demonstration project, the numbers of children going into care um, have been staying at home and staying at home safely. So when you make decisions and when you work, we have the capacity to work with families. When you give resources to Aboriginal children, we do come up with really good results. Keep up the fantastic work and I'm looking forward to getting you in on Triple R again later in the year. Um, Muriel Bamflett, she's uh, CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency and uh, check out where she's speaking next. Um, when was that Wheeler Centre Forum? Uh, May the 17th, I think it's sold out. Um, there's heaps of debate happening at the moment about proposed redevelopment of a couple of Melbourne's iconic open air markets. Uh, we're talking Queen Vic Market and also the Preston Market. Both could be revamped to include housing as well as parking and open space and uh, Dr Dave Nichols has an interest in urban planning he's senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne and it's always good to have you Dave and uh, you're a market goer as I am. I am a market goer Carly yes Um, and uh, hello to both of you. Um, Yes I'm a market goer I go to Preston Market almost every uh, every Saturday morning uh, at the moment. Um, I'm probably going to be moving house soon, so I might not be such a frequent visitor. And, and you know, the glory days are over for that place anyway. It's all, uh, it's dead in the water. Dead in the water. <laughs> Is it? No, I don't think so. I don't know. But for me, it's dead to me because I'm going to move away. Oh, you don't, don't care doesn't matter anymore. anymore. Yeah, that doesn't matter anymore. Can we talk about something else? <laughs> no, longer no. I- no longer iconic in the, <laughs> no, in, in um, the eyes of Dave Nichols. No, that's right. I think Preston Market is a fabulous market. I really I really love Preston Market and, and I have done for a long time. And it, it's still, to me, even though in the in the light, I think, of these redevelopment, uh, this redevelopment business that's been going on for the last six to 12 months, uh, a lot of the older... Um, Existing shopholders have kind of closed up and moved out. I think uh, there's been uh, rent rent rises and there's been uh, a kind of reconsideration of how the market's going to operate. So that's uh, it has actually been. It's kind of sad. There's a lot of empty shops there at the moment, and uh, there's some new things coming in. But yeah, it's kind of emptying out. Before we talk about you know the proposals for both of these markets, what what do you see as the place of open air markets when so many people, I suppose, are, are shopping in supermarkets now for even fresh fruit and veg? Yeah. Well, I think that's in the in the you know it's it's down to the individual consumer. I think some people it's it's just experience. It's an experiential thing, and I have to say I'm a little bit guilty of that myself. And you know, my mother goes to. Queen Victoria Market every weekend. She lives in Carlton and for her it's, you know, it is a kind of a, a, a slightly community experience. She, she runs into people she knows, you know, or, or not, but it's there's the option of that and it's kind of a, it's a social thing. And I, I, I don't often run into people, I know sometimes I do, but it's, it's still a kind of a, oh, here I am, you know, doing something, a, a, maybe it's a ritual or, or a routine uh, and it's, you know, uh, it's uh, in some ways I would say it's a little bit illusory, um, but what isn't in life? Well, you and know? you are still, I guess, dealing directly with storeholders rather than a machine at the supermarket as well. So even if it's not a social thing to be Arguably, there with friends, yes. there's there's yes. people who are there that you're you're buying things from. That's true, and I think it's refreshing how at markets um, stallholders are often feel at liberty to be, to be incredibly rude to you in the way that um, you know people in a supermarket would lose their job if they uh, if they tried that. I like rude. I like rude customer service. I, I know it's I really great. Yeah, yeah, I know it's really good. I know. I, I go back to cafes that are rude to me. Yeah, I don't no, know no. what it is. What is it's that? true. It's truthful. It's like you know you you feel like look I'm rubbish. I deserve this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, I was down at the Vic Market uh, on the weekend because I go there, you know, relatively regularly, and uh, and I did notice that people behind the stalls were talking about.
about Paul Keating yeah. and his interventions in this. Mm-hmm. And I know he was asked about it on, on the ABC. You know, what do you think about that? You know the what, Carly? It's a sorry to interrupt you, but he wasn't asked about it. That's one of the interesting things. He just came out with that. He, about he, the he brought that up independently. Uh, uh, in in the discussion with John Fain, so that's it was something that had obviously been on his mind, and he he volunteered that stuff. Which well, people were very very excited to hear him yeah. speak about it, and it was multiple stalls. I heard people bringing it up, customers bringing it up with storeholders, and great. Yeah, particularly about the height of the apartment yeah. block that's planned yeah. and. And, I mean, we know that Richard Wynne is lukewarm on that. He says yeah. it's, you know, doesn't have many friends, that redevelopment um, proposal. And yeah. so, I mean, and we're seeing the same thing happen with, with the Preston market in that housing is proposed to fund yeah. revamping yeah. of the market. How do you see that in, in urban planning? Is this something we need uh, to be doing? Well, the way that I see it is that, like, can I... Do you mind if I indulge in a historical perspective? With the with the Queen Victoria market in particular, it was one of a number of markets that used to be in the CBD up until, you know, the 50s and 60s. There were quite a few around the city and they were whittled down and redeveloped until there was one left. And in the early 70s, the Hamer government was dead keen to completely obliterate that market and they, they had a... You should see the pictures. It's amazing. The pictures of the, um, <clears throat> the high-rise development that was proposed... I think it was going to be called the Queen Victoria Centre or something like that. Uh, you know, everything's called Queen Victoria something in Melbourne. But um, so it had, it, or maybe it's just the Victoria Centre. Anyway, it was going to be like office buildings and, you know, I think maybe apartments and all this kind of uh, crap. And it was successfully resisted by people in, particularly people in North Melbourne, North Melbourne Association, those kinds of, you know, upstanding noble um admittedly somewhat self-interested but nevertheless, you know, um, often decent people uh, making a, a real campaign out of saving the Queen Victoria market as a kind of, you know, partly as part of history but also as a the sort of things that I was saying before, a, a community thing. And that's the early, early to mid-70s that it was successfully defended. But, it, you know, I think that from a development, you know, in a city like Melbourne that is, uh, you know, land values are just like skyrocketing, you know, doubling overnight. Um, you can see how places like uh, that market site just look so irresistible. They're just like, you know, they're like, you know, a chicken walking around in the garden with, you know, foxes looking over the fence. It's just like it's too uh, too delicious, the the idea of, of at least, you know, getting a little bit of the off the side of that site. And I guess from a certain point of view, it's a it's a big waste site, particularly that you know that car park expanse. So uh, I guess those sorts of places are always vulnerable. Uh, Preston, to a greater or lesser extent, is the same kind of story. But uh, you know, I guess it's not a it's not a billion dollar story. It's a million dollar story, but still. I, I guess more so with property values skyrocketing in sort of the inner north region as well and elsewhere, of course. But I mean, the the proposed development on the Preston Market site, as I understand, is for three hundred apartments mm-hmm. of one of fourteen stories and and two of. 10 stories. So yeah. it's a pretty sizable development that is being proposed. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's and it's, you know, it, you can't you can't drive down that bit of Murray Road though and go, "Oh, this is beautiful, it shouldn't be touched." You know, I mean, it's ugly mm. and it should be touched in a way. Something should be done about it. It's or something could be done to to improve it in in all kinds of ways. It's not uh, it's not pristine, and I, once again, the history thing. I think in the case of Preston Market, is really it's really interesting to look at the history of Preston Market, which is rather hard to divine. But um, we did a um, a tour. Uh, we took students on a field trip through there uh, earlier this year, and uh, so my my colleague uh, Victoria Kalankovic did some research on the Preston Market and discovered that you know it really dates back to 1969. It's not an old market; it's a remediated abattoir and industrial site so it's and the original plan was for it to be a shopping center which apparently they couldn't quite get happening so they um they've made it into what they made it into what it is now uh and it it is a super it is a market and it is a somewhat open-air market semi-open air market with um with three supermarkets around the outside so it's you know it's a kind of a, a melange in that sense uh it's um and it's it's quite a different you know Queen Victoria Market is so, I think, from our point of view, from our somewhat um, a slightly bastardised version of of our idea of the Melbourne experience, which, in fact, for you know, for most of us, probably only dates back a few a few decades. It's a it's a core element of that experience. Of course, if you lived in Melbourne a hundred years ago, you'd have a 
a whole lot of similar markets to choose from which no longer exist. So, you know, but nevertheless, I mean, I suppose that makes it more important and more more valuable and more of a... Um, more something that we, we would want to preserve. It's, it's a very, you know, it, it's so funny how... Uh, and Keating made this point about the Queen Victoria market, which I think was a great point, um, that the, the, the rhetoric is if we develop this little corner of the site, we can fund the re... you know, the sort of upgrade of the market. The market doesn't need to be upgraded. There's no... Well, you know, I suppose there might be some uh, amazing... Um, you know, foundational thing that you know maybe it's maybe the buildings have woodworm or something. I don't think so. I think it. I think it basically it doesn't need to be jazzed up. And I think that kind of touches on a, a broader lack of trust in governments and, and particularly developers to reinvigorate a site like the the Queen Vic Market or the Preston Market in that case and to make it a, an enjoyable experience. Because Preston Market, as, as you alluded to, has kind of happened, you know almost by mistake partly it's not really mm. a particularly beautiful market but it has kind of a, a culture mm. and an atmosphere that yeah. people clearly really enjoy yeah but even people that want you know might want to see some sort of revamping are distrustful mm. of how it might pan out that it might end up being closed in that it will be more like a shopping center experience rather than a than a market experience which is um that sort of you know concern i suppose is also part of this it's and it's also and I mean let's face it. Like personally, I wouldn't trust a developer in you know in any sense for any purpose at any time. But um, government, mm, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I'm sort of fifty fifty on that. But the, um, the there's often the way that this is portrayed is as though the uh, these new apartment developments will give the market give it some maybe a couple of interesting places, interesting spaces, and, and so on. Also, give the market uh, a lot more people coming through. Well. You know, and we know that um, everyone in Preston is a, you know, middle-class NIMBY, but they, um, they're they all like... Should I just uh, let that go through to the keeper? I think I will. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, you can imagine... And I feel this way too. I mean, I feel this as well. It's like, oh, I don't want hundreds more people coming through the market, you know, because they live nearby and they, you know, they just want to, you know, get some salami on the way home. I don't want that in my Preston market. And... Uh, you know that's why I go I go I go to the market before it's even officially open because you know I've um, you know I feel like uh, you know there's not many people around and and you feel kind of special but the um, you know that that kind of idea of an influx of new new people uh, and of course most of the time the people who are complaining about the influx of new people are you know last year's influx you know they're like yes but no more it's you know it's the same old um, immigrant. Uh, Syndrome. Um, we're talking market redevelopments with uh, Dr. Dave Nichols from University of Melbourne. Regularly comes in, talks planning with us here on the Grapevine. And I suppose, um, you know, in the time we've got left with you, Dave, I'd love to talk about the the kind of culture of these markets and their small business. A lot of them, uh, mm. there's a push for the Vic market if it's you know redevelopment redeveloped as planned to become a seven day a week market and. Uh, the you know the leases there like it's actually quite a complex um, thing to kind of r- r- negotiate with yeah. all these tiny like little little businesses particularly in the sort of Delhi areas I suppose and the idea is that there'll be this big architecturally designed greenhouse and everyone's going to be relocated into it and it's going to be an educational like there's a there's a very big grand plan that is afoot and it doesn't seem going by the rally last Friday that it's broadly supported by the traders no. What, and why would it be? I mean, why would they? Why? I, I imagine I could be wrong. I've never, you know, I, unlike unlike you, Kalia, I haven't talked to the the traders except to say, you know, um, half a kilo of tomatoes, please. But um, I I have the feeling that they're you know they're not in a bad position, and it could go horribly pear shaped for them. And why do they want to get on board with that with that kind of world? You know, why why would they? If it's if things are going all right, I mean, regardless of tradition, things things work there. It works as it as it currently stands. It's a it's a workable thing, and it's it has that kind of um, culturally speaking. I think it has a kind of resilience that's been proven over the um, you know century and a bit that it's it's existed. So, so what do you think will will happen in in a sort of a um crystal ball sense like do you think it will take place a development with a two hundred story apartment block no. next door with a greenhouse above the 
car parking or I, I'm not sure that the the 200 story uh, thing is exactly correct but Sorry, sorry, 200 metre, sorry, <laughs> okay. 60 storey, I think it was, sorry. Yep. <laughs> there, are, there are 200 storeys in the Victoria market. Um, yeah, uh, no, I think it will probably, something will go ahead on a, on a reduced scale. And, you know, I mean, this, this is why, like, coming in here, I was looking at the, these kind of proposals and I was thinking, you know, should I write these down, these kinds of, the, what they propose? And I thought, well, they always get minimised and, you know, brought down. Everyone makes this amazing ambit claim you know, we're going to build it halfway to the moon and it's going to be the greatest thing ever. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll settle for, you know, a five-storey boutique, you know. Uh, so it's... No, I think I think something will happen because they've, they've got a certain way into uh, closing stuff down um, and... Uh, and getting and prepping yeah, people for the idea. Closed and yeah, a lot of those shops are empty now, opposite where the where the tower is supposed to go. But yes. what and what about housing affordability? I mean, the, this idea that we were of a possible shoehorn apartments in. What what do you mm. think about that as mm-hmm. as part of sort of city planning? Uh, the the cynicism involved in that kind of thing is just you know, seriously you know, um, it's it's sick making and that. The inclu- inclusion of a maternal and child health centre in there is like, you know, well, you know, the, a lot of kids are going to get very sick if we don't get to build this, you know, billion-dollar thing. You know, what about who's going to be weighing the babies? You know, it's just such... Uh, so horrible. Well, I think... <laughs> <laughs> On that note. It's horrible. Mic drop. I can't drop this mic because uh, it's plugged in. The... Um, maybe maybe a, a, another discussion we can talk about some of these tactics to get approval for development. You know, what are the kinds of things that work to get your development over the line? Maybe yeah. maternal child health nurse Green in the houses. school. Greenhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, obviously, like, I mean, I feel like I often come come on this show and, you know, we're sort of talking about planning, but what we're really talking about is state government politics. Or in the case of Preston, I think we're talking more local government politics to it. But in both cases, Richard Wynne's being asked to to make, you know, decisions. And, you know, he's, he's a decent person with, um, you know, reasonable uh, sense of how these how these things work. And he's, you know, some of the things that he's done we probably wouldn't agree with, but some, you know, a lot of the time I think he's quite... You know, um, compared to his predecessor, he's um, he's you know, trying to find genius. solutions to things. At exactly, least. Yeah. exactly. And so I I feel that um, you know the politics of it are, are the thing that you have to watch to see how see what gets through and what gets accepted. But you know, I, I personally think uh, in both of these, now Preston much less because Preston is still a kind of a that's a bit of a niche thing and it's a local thing and it's um, you know you only really know it if you lived either in Preston or on the at least on the South Morang line or something but um, a lot of you know so many people around the world are you know Sigrid Thornton you know comes out in favour of the Queen Victoria imagine if she came out against it but you know she comes out in favour of the Queen Victoria market and you know so celebrities will will jump on this and and use their celebrity for good in this instance and I, I think that um it's a you're kind of picking, you know, who wants to be remembered as the politician who killed the Queen Victoria market? You know, it's really, uh, it's not what you want on your tombstone. No, no, and um, we haven't even gone to, into Robert Doyle's um, the mayor's arguments. I don't think he thinks he's killing it. That's for sure. No, he, you know, and I, I, I no, he doesn't, and he has he has some some arguments, but um, they are nonsense. Thank you for coming in, Dave. Thank you very much. Um, Three coffees. How was that? Three coffees? Dave Nichols. <laughs> I should have gone for four, I know. Senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Melbourne joins us monthly talking all sorts of things to do with urban planning slash politics. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.